Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello, wonderful wine lovers. Now, if you've got some wine in the fridge, preferably pink, do get it out because today we are talking about Provence and specifically rosé. Now, 89% of the wines of Provence are actually rosé, but you should be aware that there are some fantastic whites and delicious reds that they produce as well. I have a great guest, Lauren Holman, who is the export manager for Chateau Lube, an incredible winery right on the Mediterranean coast. But we're going to get to that in a little bit. So my question to you guys this week is, what is the most expensive bottle of rosé you've ever had? Or even specifically, the most expensive Provence rosé? At the end of the podcast, I'm going to talk about some of the most expensive pink wines in the world. And let's see if that surprises you or not. So hold on tight for that. So have you been to Provence? This is down in the southeast of France, right on the Mediterranean Sea and bordering with Italy. It's an absolutely amazing place filled with 3,000 hours of sunshine, lavender fields, olive trees, sunflowers, thyme, juniper, rosemary. It is a gorgeous place. And oh, sorry, lots of wine. It's filled with lots of wine. So talking of wine, this is actually the oldest region in France. That's correct. So people talk about Bordeaux, they talk about Burgundy. Provence is the oldest region and we're talking like the 6th century BC. So apparently about 2,600 years of history and they've been making rosé wine pretty much since the beginning so that's something they were famous for and actually there is a dedicated research centre for rosé within Provence and this is the only one in the world so that might be the reason why Provence can produce some of the best rosés. Provence is definitely not just a one-stop shop. There are so many different regions. I'll touch on that a little bit later. But think about you've got coastal influences. Then further inland, you've got loads of mountainous terrain. You have different soil types. And then you have this incredible wind comes down from the Rhone Valley. So it comes down south. It's super, super strong, but also really, really cold. And then that runs through many of the vineyards. So there's lots of different factors cooling down those vines. I think Lauren will explain things really well. You'll get to know the Provence region so much better with her. So we'll go over to the chat now where you can learn how Lauren got suckered into the world of wine and she can tell the romantics of this beautiful wine region. Hello, Lauren. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you ever so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. And as people already know, you work for Chateau Lube. And as we were just joking around, we should call you Lady Lauren Lube, shall we? From now on. If you like. I'd... <laughs> That's I really... probably one of the most polite introductions, but yes, we'll go with Lady Lube Lauren. No, 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 no. Not Lady Lube Lauren. No, no, no. Lady oh, Lauren Lube. Yeah, yeah, no. The that triple had... L. Yes, My Lady usual Lauren. triple L's are long leisurely launches, but we could also go with uh, the other one. Uh, if only we can get back to those non-literary <laughs> lunches soon. Indeed, I can't soon. wait. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. We're going to talk so much about Lube and you've sent me some delicious wines, which we're going to taste. So I, I can't, I'm, actually, I might just start sipping in a second. But <laughs> I already have. <laughs> okay, right. Hang on. Let me just uh, do a little sip. <laughs> 
Delish. So tell everyone listening, first of all, how did you get into wine? So I grew up with a rather wine enthusiastic family. So I think just one Mm. of those families where every Sunday lunch, we always had, you know, wine on the table. So I got brought up around it quite early on. And, lucky you um, yeah lucky me indeed and lucky then kind of getting lady Lauren <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then getting dragged around vineyards in the back of a little 2CV a very mm. French little car that my mum used to drive I mean Love I think it. I mean I remember images of my brother and I in the back of this little car packed around uh, wine bo- boxes coming back into the UK you know kind of your classic wine runs into mm-hmm. the northern parts of France so mm-hmm. and uh, we always had French friends and so yeah I got brought up a lot around French more old worldy and sometimes okay. Spanish wines and my granddad absolutely loves his wines so um, and then I moved to Monaco when I was 18 19 oh, very fancy it's fancy but uh, I it was less of the fancy but uh, yeah more of a worker <laughs> I suppose but yeah I was I had access to some you know very very lovely and uh, affluent friends and uh, had had a great time and then after that, ended up doing something completely different and ended up being in finance in New York. And then actually, I wanted to come back and work on yachts. And okay. so it's on yachts that I had the disposable income to actually just pay for my own education. And mm-hmm. I loved wine, naturally, from my upbringing. And then I decided to put myself through WSET training. And then I just loved it so much. And I took on all the portfolios of the people that I worked for. Mm-hmm. And I just I just loved it. And I loved getting into the nitty gritty of all the kind of geeky side of wine, like the geographies and the topology and yeah. the kind of science side of things. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to come back to the UK and met my other half and we ended up in London. And I was like, Do you know what, I'm going to take wine more seriously. So then I got a job in as a, a small importer for they're now called graft wines, but it was before the knotted vine. Mm-hmm. and started I was the sales manager for London and then I moved on to for yeah Chateau but I think the main moment for me in terms of why did I want to make wine like a proper living and I suppose a career I mean yeah. we all don't go into it for the money that's for sure we do it because of the passion <laughs> no we don't and I worked <laughs> I trained with a master of wine called Louise Sidbeck who's based in the south of France mm-hmm. in Antibes and I did my training in WSETs okay. with her and it was just one of those moments where she said oh it would be a real shame if if you let your palate go to waste uh, so you know she didn't have to say that I had a good palate uh, especially not like kind but of she range, noticed but she noticed it and it was a really kind moment and it made me reflect and think well actually maybe I should do something with this because I really enjoy it and, and why not so that's that was the defining moment really for me to say okay I'm, go- I'm going to give it a shot and I'm, I'm glad that nice. I did and here you are at Chateau Leoub uh, for anybody who doesn't know what Chateau Leoub is <laughs> this is a fantastic property down in Provence in the south of France so I suppose I shouldn't be talking about this tell us tell us a little bit more about Chateau Leoub how do you want to start with that Chateloube, uh, we are a very Provencal estate, so we're actually based right on the water in a little, almost a village called Bombe de Mimosa, which is part of the La Lande appellation in, in yeah. French Provence. So mm-hmm. we are this little tiny little area, a sub-appellation of Provence that's very well known for our kind of microclimate and our schist soils. And just, I mean, just with that beautiful sea breeze influence, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we're right next to the sea. Well, you literally can't get vines that grow less than 50 metres away, which is where ours do. So it's oh, a beautiful... Really? Fif- yeah, 50, 50 metres? 
meters. meters. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, so you've got the beach. We have, we're set within 560 hectares of protected French forest. Um, yes, I've heard how beautiful this place is. It really right? is. Sometimes I sound like I'm really bragging, but it honestly, it's just the most spectacular place. Okay, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to have a sip of the rosé, <laughs> one of them. And I want you and to now just, I'm, yes, and now I'm going to imagine what you tell me. Go for it. And now imagine the scent of lavender <laughs> and mm-hmm. the sound of cicadas and mm-hmm. you're gently walking through the waters. No, I'll stop taking you on that journey. <laughs> I was really enjoying that. I hope everyone else was like, carry on, fine, do it the boring way. <laughs> do it the boring way. Do it the boring and way. So we, we've got about four kilometers of coastline. So that includes three beaches, a beautiful one called Pellegrin Beach. Mm. So actually, um, if anybody's in the area, we would be more than happy to welcome you. We've got a lovely little cafe layout. So you can eat all of our... Our local produce that we farm ourselves in our organic market garden Ugh. drink obviously our produce we've got olive oil we make honey we do jams you know just it's a it's a lovely little it's very family orientated place of the south of france so and we're only about 40 minutes west of saint-tropez along the coast so actually we're not that far away from the glitz and glamour of the usual sites that you imagine mm-hmm. when you say the Côte de provence so this is literally a place that people need to come and visit. There's no excuse yes. now. The, the, the beaches, just out of interest, are they private beaches to you? Do you have a private section or is it a public beach? So interestingly enough, with the French law, there can't actually be any private beaches in France. So it's still, oh, really? the land okay. is owned by ourselves, but you have to allow access to to the beach. Ugh. So anybody can technically be there. See, the riffraff are on. So oh, the, you can okay. technically <laughs> walk to all three of the beaches, but the one that's most accessible by okay. car and you can come and obviously eat and drink at our cafe would be this beach called Pellegrin, Pellegrin Beach. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's really stunning. So okay. kind of your classic, you know, lovely pine trees and there's this garrigue around and all the kind of wild mint mm. and wild rosemary and all these herbs. Sorry. You're doing it again. <laughs> no, I lo- no, honestly, I am going to book a flight. I mean, I'm allowed to get to France. I'm, I'm going people tomorrow. like a Provence meditation uh, no, or something. Oh, I think, I think you could actually. There's, there's yeah. another career for you. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, that was already done and dusted. Yoga teaching training in 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 India sorted me right out with that one. So yeah, technically qualified. Fabulous, everyone. Right. So um, anyone listening, do contact me. I will uh, pass on Lauren's details and um, we'll get you hooked up for a rosé and uh, yoga spiritual journey amongst the lavender fields. Let's do it. Let's do it. Love that. Okay, that's a date. Now, how long has Chateau been around for? It's been, well, technically Chateau, so also it's not just uh, we've put the name Chateau on it. We, it is actually a property. So there is a mm-hmm. castle, a Chateau, that's uh, 16th century. Mm-hmm. So it's been around for quite a while. And the vines have actually been around for probably longer than that. I mean, you probably know, but um, your listeners probably know. But Provence is the oldest wine region in all of France because it mm-hmm. came over from the Greeks and the Romans uh, over on, on obviously the east side and um, migrated over to France. And that's the first place that they hit and decided to make grapes. So it's it's a very it's a region rich in history for grape growing. Mm-hmm. And the, so the Chateau has always been around. And in terms of uh, why we took over it, so it was 1997. The now current owners is actually a British family. Um, the, the Bamford. I know this is what I love. Yes. <laughs> and they they were in the market for finding a beautiful 
uh, Provence uh, property along the coast. And it just so mm -hmm. happened that they fell in love with this one. And it also came along with, at the time, 60 hectares of vines. So it wasn't necessarily a project where they're like, oh, we want to be a we want to be wine growers. Actually, it's just that, you know, it's just mm -hmm. such a gem of a property and all the land. And also it was owned previously by a unfortunately a late widow. At the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a full time job keeping on track of proper mm -hmm. farming techniques and, and making really decent wine is you have to put a lot of love back into the property. Oh, so gosh. they uh, decided yeah. to purchase it in 1997 and begin the journey of, of putting that love and that passion back into the project so previously the wine was for bulk production and for kind of like local consumption mm -hmm. and then it was um kind of early 2000s like 2009-ish that we decided to actually this the, yeah the wine now is really good enough we've put a lot of effort into the land and the terroir and uh, our soils are very nourished in order to actually slap the Chateau logo on it so that's kind of when it started and it was in line with our export we started mm. exporting the wine uh, after local consumption around 2009 which is the same year also we actually got the organic certification although organics has always been there throughout well just to just to ch check so they actually had the property from 1997 but did not start selling mm -hmm. the wine till 2009 when they felt it was completely ready Yes. Wow. That shows so that quality. gives you an indication mm. of how detail orientated and how passionate we are about about the details and how we mm -hmm. need to make good quality wine and we're not happy unless it really is just 100% amazing, basically. <laughs> I like that. And touch on organics again, because I know that that's super important because this is the Banford family in England, right? Who have exactly. Dalesford Organic Farms. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, I mean, they're one of the pioneering families for sustainability and for organics here in the UK. So that particular farm in the UK has been going for 35, 40 years, all mm -hmm. organic. So, you know, which is quite a big risk, especially with the UK weather, because it's a <laughs> little bit... It's uh, bad? <laughs> yeah. Is it? Oh, okay. hmm. oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one of those places, thankfully, in, in the south of France, mm -hmm. it's a little bit easier, I suppose, to be organic than it is here in the UK oh, because we don't get as much rainfall. And, you know, there's, and thankfully, we're in a place where we're right next to the sea. So that sea breeze does pay a lot of attention to, to making sure that actually for us, um, organics is, is a lot easier, um, but also means that we're now kind of trying to go to the next stage of, how else can we better the planet? Okay. We would like to leave the land in a much better place than what we found it. So it's almost like leaving a legacy of mm -hmm. trying to nourish the soils and, and to really to, to let the biodiversity thrive. So organic actually has just been part of their philosophy from day one. So sure. it's been implemented since 1997. And then it just so happened that the certification was in line with what our aims were and, and how we chose to farm regardless. And then, yeah, the next step, we also farm with biodynamic principles in mind as well. Okay. We haven't decided to certify in that light mm -hmm. um, just because it handcuffs you a little bit and some of the things we don't necessarily um, naturally agree with. But yep. organics is, is fully, yeah, basically the heart of what we do. Beautiful. And um, let's just because <laughs> just because I'm drinking it <laughs> and I want to talk about it. Let's just talk about the Chateau Lube. This is the flagship on the bottle. It says Rosé de Lube. So is that the name of this flagship wine? Rosé de Lube. Exactly. So that's okay. the cuvee name. So Rosé de Lube basically means yeah, Lube's Rosé or 
also um, within our team, our little nickname for it is actually Chateau Rosé, just between you and I. So if oh, you were to join you and I team, you'd, and you'd, everyone yeah, else, exactly. <laughs> now everybody knows. Uh, so yeah, if you if yeah. you hear Chateau Rosé, we're also referring to Rosé de la Hugue. So okay. this is our flagship Rosé. It's what we make the most of. So mm-hmm. actually, our production for our estate-grown wines, which is most of them, that we only make about four hundred thousand bottles a year, which might sound like quite a lot. But considering our neighbours and people a little bit further up in the mountains make onwards and upwards of millions of bottles, we're still oh, okay. relatively quite small and, and, and in essence quite new to the market because we have only just started really exporting over the past five, ten years. So this particular wine is kind of your classic grapes. So we've got Grenache and Samsa are the main leads here. And then we've mm-hmm. got a little bit of Syrah and Mouvedre. And classically, every single year, there will be a different percentage of all four of those grapes, but always leading with that Grenache and Sanso. Those grapes just really thrive where we are. So Yeah, they, they love the schist soils, don't they, in mm-hmm. the lawns? Absolutely. Yeah. This, for me, I just, what I, I love the minerality to it. I love this almost like a minty note, something herbaceous. It's super, mm-hmm. super fresh. So just, it's it's this elegant woman just on the beach, just with, you know, dressed <laughs> in purple, just to match Provence. But, you know, it's like... um. This beautiful strawberry and watermelon, but it's it's very soft and quite subtle. I, I think it's delicious. Um, yeah, love it. I mean, the aromas specifically on this vintage as well are very like kind of soft red fruits, slight kind of light spices as well, which you're yes. kind of going to get from that, you know, tiny little hint of syrup. And then on, on the actual, the palate itself, you know, kind of it fleshes out a little bit more to like a little bit more white fruit uh, and more very of those kind of textural. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, definitely. And then again, always finishing with that lovely mineral uh, salinity style of a finish. And that directly comes from that schist soil and specifically marine schist. I mean, I think it was mm. like 800 million years ago. The land that the chateau is now built on and obviously all the vines, which are at the heart of the property, which is mm-hmm. only 70 hectares now. The that was all seabed 800 million years ago was literally just sea. So you can imagine as the sea has regressed, all mm-hmm. those beautiful qualities of that kind of saline and mineral from the sea has just deposited straight into the land. And now we thankfully grow our wines and they just love it. And so thankfully they show it through. So it's it's a very we're very terroir driven for our estate wines. Well, I can tell you one, I agree with you, and two, I just finished that the glass I poured already, <laughs> so I had, to, I had to pour another one just just to double check, you know, in case I'll give you one. an hour and we'll. Check Check in if the bottle's gone. <laughs> I could do with some some Parma ham right now, and actually some Parma ham and melon. That would be very very nice oh, with this. So nice, um, yeah, like that, Mediterranean tapas dishes, or, or yeah, yeah, or even some like um, I think like crostinis with some like pesto on them or something. I don't know. Oh, I'm just thinking. Yes. We make our own pesto actually. Oh, of course you do. That is a perfect <laughs> pairing. With, <laughs> that is a perfect pair. jam. By the way, that you make doesn't it just for anyone listening is not a perfect pairing. Well, unless unless you want to unless you want to try and challenge me on that one, I wouldn't quite. Put so the we jam have with a we have a sparkling rosé which is champagne method called sparkling de Lille, just to keep it simple okay and that particular wine works really well for kind of these uh, you know like your high your high teas you know if you went to Claridge's is or... it a little bit is there a bit more sugar in this that sparkling so it's actually comp- it's zero dosage so really? it's brut nature yeah. Okay. And um, that, but again, it's you know very 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 light. In fact, the color in French, they've got this lovely term which is called onion skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the kind of color of it. And yeah, that particular wine actually works really well with kind of that slight yeah that cream tea jam. Um, yeah, for for some weird reason, it just really works. I'll have to send you a bottle and you'll oh, understand. <laughs> okay, I think that's that's important. Now now we talked about the onion skin color. So let's mm-hmm. let's get a little bit technical. How does Provence get the onion skin color 
for instance, in comparison to we know there are rosés either around France or other countries that are much, much uh, redder, pinker, darker. So why is Provence and how are they producing that lighter colour? It will be purely down to the, the pressing and uh, also obviously your winemaking technique. So unlike Sinier method, which is the bleeding mm-hmm. off and then the, the bottles, then the grapes will then go get fermented into to red wine. So you're kind of getting rosé and red wine at the same time. We're not Sinier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got the other method, which is blending method. Again, uh, other countries will typically use those less in France. We're not that either. We in Provence specifically, we, we tend to take the traditional route of uh, direct press. Mm-hmm. So this means that our grapes, I mean, ours specifically, our grapes are whole bunch. They get they get okay. picked by, um, well, they're hand-picked by our wonderful vineyard workers. Mm-hmm. And then within about five, ten minutes, they're in the winery. They're actually all quality controlled within the within the actual vineyard itself. Okay. Um, so it's pretty it's pretty intense work. I actually did it last year and um, I don't know <laughs> it's how yes. do it. It sounds fun to do harvest. And then when it's you actually really go pick grapes, fun. <laughs> after like 20 minutes, you're like, uh, my back hurts. Could I drink some wine now? <laughs> yeah, if, someone, if, if, if anybody wants to come and help just for the experience, you're more than welcome. But I can, yeah, trust Slave me. Slave labor. <clears throat> well, we're definitely not that. We're very ethical no. in our... Sorry, um, sorry. I'm not promoting you well. <laughs> So I didn't say anything. Um, so the yeah we we're all hand um, uh, it's, it's full whole bunches. They go into the press uh, directly, mm-hmm. and then that's pressed in this kind of very slow pneumatic press. So if you if you're familiar with like an espresso machine, for example, yeah. the pressure on an espresso machine is roughly about nine bars of pressure. Okay. We are less than one bar, so you oh, can so... imagine how gentle this press this pressing is. Jenna, that's really interesting. I've never had anyone actually explain it in that term for pressure so that's actually really Hmm. visual that's very clever we like that so I think it's just because everybody's used to seeing a coffee machine I suppose so it's 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 incredibly (laughs) Mm -hmm. incredibly gentle and that takes roughly about two two and a half hours so actually the the juice has no hardly any contact with the skins and the color naturally if it's a red grape or white grape will always come from the 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 skins of Mm -hmm. the grape the juice inside is completely clear so because of that hardly well very limited skin contact then our Provence juice in general will always be that paler type, which is obviously becoming a huge trend around the world. And everybody is slapping the label Provence style (laughs) on their bottles. It's like, well, actually, you're not, though, are you? So um, (laughs) perhaps perhaps we need to go along the same champagne method and get some sort of uh, appellation rules around it. But that's another conversation. It is, isn't it? So (laughs) let's let's touch on that then. Provence style. Why Why do you then think Provence is so popular now what how has this boom happened well I think in general the Cote d'Azur has been such a glamorous kind of wanted lifestyle that many people have aspired to for for many many years probably since kind of Marilyn Monroe and Grace Mm -hmm. Kelly days where sipping with uh, a, a lovely ice cold glass of rosé by the sea with your toes in the sand is just kind of this thing that everybody would love to have experienced at some point in their life. So, you know, the glitz and glamour of Saint-Tropez and Monaco and yeah. Cannes. And so I think it's just, it's definitely risen from those days where, you know, the media's got along with it. And so that's that's a lot more easy accessible now, and especially obviously with social media. And so then another, well, I'm not going to name names, but I think we all know <laughs> of some pretty big ones around around the market <laughs> that have have spent a lot of money in marketing yeah. and 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 that's definitely helped put Provence on the map so thank you ever so much now, but, uh, yeah, we've been around <laughs> for a long time 
Okay, so yeah, it is. I suppose it's that luxury, and, and the, I mean, Provence generally typically has three thousand hours of sunshine. Mm-hmm. So in comparison, uh, Paris, which is just what's kind of six hours drive, mm-hmm. uh, almost eight hours drive north of us in France, that's that's only two thousand hours of sunshine. And I mean, I dread to even think how many sunshine hours we get here in the UK, but yeah, <laughs> three thousand to th- to two thousand within that short kind of space of geography is yeah is, is quite quite significant no that is actually pretty shocking how different it is so yeah, let, I, yeah. as you said let's ignore the england because i think that might be like a thousand <laughs> who knows well oh. champagne are buying up all of our south coast so maybe there's something in this climate change business that we, we don't really know about too much but uh, yeah specifically in the south as well there a lot of people do have a problem with you know alcohol levels are rising mm-hmm. naturally because our sun sunshine hours are actually also going up and because there's less and less rain because of climate change we've definitely seen a, a shift in even our harvest dates coming um, relatively nearer and nearer towards the kind of um, august date than it, than it was even just five ten years ago well, interesting you say that because what I've heard is often the vineyards by the sea um, or coastal, which is yourselves, often have a difference. There can be sometimes like a month and a half difference from up into, mm-hmm. say, the mountains much more inland because actually people don't realise Provence is really different. There it's is huge yes. as well. Mm. And very mountainous. So yeah, you, for example, up in Saint-Victoire, they will probably, I mean, probably more in the valley of Saint-Victoire, mm-hmm. you will get at least a, a week, if not two, earlier than, than in, the, in where specifically where we are in the very south, ah. right next to the to the water. And it's purely because of that um, sea, the, the water body, that with the sea breeze and obviously mm-hmm. the kind of famous Mistral that always happens as well, then our it means that our grapes, thankfully, even though it's super hot down there, that it gets that gentle sea breeze like constantly 24 7 so this also helps with fighting off diseases and pests etc because the vines are super healthy because they've got that flow and because they don't ever get too hot yeah okay that's so interesting and I think people really should actually start actually looking not just Provence on a label but reading more what it says on the label so just you've touched on two sub appellations of Côte de Provence now Côte de Provence obviously is the largest appellation mm-hmm. hence why we you know most people know it you're in La Londe mm-hmm. um, and you mentioned Saint-Victoire now I just have a, a, a question on La Londe why on your flagship Chateau Lyube Rosé de Louvre <laughs> do you not say La Londe on it why are you not using that Subappellation. So we 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 do use it for our most premium at the minute rosé. Mm-hmm. So actually, we've called a rosé Lalande, Lalande La Lande ah, is the okay. full expression. And so we've decided to actually give that appellation as um, Côte de Provence Lalande. Okay. And the reason why we, in essence, slightly declassify as to get Lalande as well, like you have to go through a whole heap extra of uh, of handcuffs in order to to get mm. that. So again, just kind of to be less restrictive and okay. a bit more to our style and what we want to do with with our wines we choose to typically most of our wines are cut to Provence but then which is obviously the biggest like you said but we do for for one of our wines we do actually give it the full appellation for about 90 percent of our land is is technically within the Lalonde appellation so again we have to choose our grapes according to specifically that line because it is a case of there's a line uh, that you wouldn't know you it's a bit like going to Scotland to to England you know without mm-hmm. the Hadrian's Wall you could just cross over <laughs> and you've got no clue which country yes. you're in so it's the same thing for for, for kind of boundaries within within Provence and most appellations 
Kitchen. It's the same in, you know, you get Grand Cru, Grand Cru Vineyards and all of a sudden right next door to it with one step you're in a Premier Cru. So it's like, yes. yeah, no one would ever really know but one price is extortionate and the other one's a little bit more accessible. <laughs> well, that's nice anyway that's for people to know that this Rosé de Loube is Le Lande. It comes with those schist soils. It comes with those characteristics, but they're not paying potentially the same price tag, right? Mm-hmm. How much would yep. this? How much does this wine retail at? So it's uh, roughly like nineteen ninety nine okay. between yeah awesome. eighteen nineteen twenty pounds is the typical go to price for this particular wine. So it's it's very accessible, but it's mm. also completely organic, and you're getting that sea uh, sea influence and saline qualities, like really terroir driven uh, rosé. So it's it's a serious rosé, but also can be drunk as an apero like we are doing right now. Exactly, I know, we did not prepare the food. But anyway, I can <laughs> highly recommend it to anyone. I love it, the elegance, the minerality, the freshness. It's not just about red berries and it's a lovely, dry, crisp style. It's it's stunning. Thank you. You are so welcome. Now, actually, um, and you can pass that on to Romain, the winemaker. So I we... shall do, your shall... tasting notes are spot on. Oh, thank you. So let's drink the, and I say drink because we're not spitting here. This is serious <laughs> business. Um, let's drink the Love by Lube and actually whilst we start on that can you tell me a bit more about Romainot because I love his history and I think people would be pretty impressed when they realize what family house he comes from <laughs> so Roman Ott is our uh, winemaker he's been in charge of production since 2000 now and he he often calls himself the son of the neighbor so he does okay. come from the, the, the Ott family dynasty. So mm-hmm. he's the direct line of what was or is the, the Ott family mm-hmm. for all the wines, obviously. The, the next door, literally next door, again, one of those moments where you cross over the boundary line and all of a sudden you're in the Clomiré uh, Domaine Ott um, grounds. That's right next door to us. You could okay. you could throw a stone. And he, he grew up there. He, he's lived there his whole life. And then Romani is the fourth generation winemaker. His father was the third. Mm-hmm. And uh, his father, decided to retire and he sold the Domain Ott business along to the Cristal Rodera uh, wine family and it was then his father's brother that took on the project and kind of is now helping with the winemaking over there. So Roman, well his father came over when he technically retired, so he still obviously wanted a bit of a, a shoe-in with winemaking and mm-hmm. our family, the Bamford family asked him to help consult when they first bought the property to say hey, how do we bring this vineyard back to life? How do we go about creating creating something that's impressive and, and good for the market so he came on board and then uh, naturally when Roman finished his agriculture studies over in Toulon and he specialized in viticulture he then kind of got dragged along by his father I think he had hopes and aspirations of going over to I think Napa Valley and uh, some <laughs> I think South Africa has always been his dream place to, to grow some vines oh. he yeah he got kind of earmarked over to to help with uh, Chateau Leoub and he's stayed ever since and he's been in charge of production since 2000 and well, he takes that's... care of everything from yeah the winemaking awesome. to the production side he yeah and he also does the olive oils as well so yeah he's, he's got a, a big a big role on his hands and he's done phenomenal job with creating a style for Chateau Leoub and, and we're very proud of the wines he does a fantastic job I'm proud of the wines I'm proud of myself <laughs> for drinking these wines <laughs> what so now what I can notice on the love by Leoub it's much more fruity it's more <laughs> 
I, I imagine would I be right in saying there's actually a bit more residual sugar in this one it seems like there is a little it's a dry wine still but it seems a little bit fruitier and that touch sweeter much more kind of cranberries raspberries strawberries all together yeah, yeah. so residual sugar actually all of our roses are less than one gram uh, per liter really? so but in Ooh. terms of the difference I mean we're less or we're less than one gram still for the love value but you're probably talking less than about 0.7 of a gram for mm-hmm. for the Chateau the Rosé de Lille. so even that slight bit of a difference even though it's still technically bone dry you are going to get slightly different sweeter fruit profiles mm-hmm. in the love by sure. so a bit more of that kind of exotic fruit slightly also this particular vintage a little bit more of like honeyed acacia mm, okay yeah it's got that slight slight kind of tint towards that uh, that, that i feel and then on the actual palate itself is a bit more of that kind of yeah fruitier red berries as opposed to the lighter and softer red mm-hmm. fruits of the of the chateau of the Chateau Rosé. The other one had this kind of, obviously very long le- long legs, long length, elegance, minerality to it, peachiness, whereas this one is that kind of like almost cranberry, crunchy red fruits, mm-hmm. berries. It doesn't have the same elegance in comparison, but if I hadn't drunk the other one, this one is just, it, it's actually really friendly and kind of fun and really, it's very mm-hmm. gluggable, but in a, a quite refined It's slightly way. more accessible mm-hmm. to, to, yeah, to every to everyday drinkers, really. That's, that's why it was created. So, you know, where Whereas the, the Rosé de Lube is very much a, a sophisticated rosé. And actually, the, the Rosé de Lube is our entry estate. Okay. And this Love by Le Lube is, is the most accessible in terms of price. It's typically around the kind of £15 mark, 15 mm-hmm. 16 So still 100% certified organic, but we work with other local wine growers in order to, to put a label on this. So actually, the, the grapes are from from all over the place, but typically quite quite near to us, but not as schisty soils as what we're used to. So it's slightly a bit more kind of limestoney and, and calcious than, than the, uh, the schist that we get with our estate wines. No, I think they're both fantastic and they're both definitely worth the price, you know. So now my question, what is the percentage? We've talked about rosé and of course, because it's fashionable and it's delicious and it's (laughs) summer, so it's important, but you do make red and white wines as well. So what's the percentage of rosé compared to the white wines and red wines you do? So we've actually got 11 wines to date, uh, cuvées that is. And um, in terms of percentage, we're actually lower percentage than most of our um, counterparts in Provence. So Mm -hmm. predominantly in Provence, you're talking about 90% is is rosé. We Mm -hmm. actually, uh, of our estate wines, we're about 80%. uh, We make 80% of our production is rosé. 15% is uh, red wine and 5% is white wine. Although the white wine, I think, is is slightly grown. We have just added another cuvée in there. So yeah, we've got three three reds three whites we make obviously a little bit more of the red because i think that's quite classic anyway of of provence uh, red wines are getting a little bit more featured and a bit more trendy mm-hmm. but yeah we've got our we've got rouge de Lube, which is very syrah based for a red wine and then we have the Fort de Lube, which is a, a pretty much a mixed blend of four southern French uh, grape varietals, a little bit of Cab Sauv in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we also have our Grand Vin, or we actually call it, uh, the, the real name is Leoub Collector. The idea is oh. that you collect vintages. Nice. And that one also we, again, within our French team, we also call it Super Provence. <laughs> and the reason why is it's actually majority Cabernet Franc. 
Cabernet Franc is actually not a great varietal that is technically to this date not allowed within the Appalachian Cote mm. de Provence. So we actually choose to make this Grand Vin and uh, declassify it to Vin de France just because we we planted Cab Franc or Romanche, shall I say, uh, planted Cab Franc. <laughs> I wasn't definitely in wine 20 years ago. <laughs> um, he planted it 20 years ago when they first uh, got the estate and started working with the land. They realized that where we are in Provence is the exact same latitude as Tuscany. So in Tuscany, you've got super Tuscans. Mm. So you plant a Bordeaux grape varietal in Tuscany and then obviously mix it with the with the local Sangiovese. Well, we decided to plant a Bordeaux varietal of Cabernet Franc and uh, it's just it's just thrived it's it's really coming into its own i mean now the vines are between 15 and 20, 15 and 20 years old they just they just love it they love the schist soil they love the sea breeze and we've created a, a yeah pretty much majority blend cabernet franc it's beautiful kind of like that beautiful kind of green bell pepper and the and the leathery notes and, and i mean the most recent vintage we have is 2013 and we only started actually doing vintages of that in 2011 so we're two three four years in now so I must have tasted that vintage of the 2011 because I remember working in Beast oh, Restaurant and, and they and they brought that wine to me and it was, oh, the freshness was stunning. The freshness <laughs> and the power, that's what I remember. Yes, it's it's a very powerful wine, definitely. But the idea is that, I mean, with, with quite a lot of single varieties, Cab Francs, they're amazing to age. I mean, this particular bottle, obviously, yes, we're seven years behind in terms of vintage through the mm-hmm. 2013, but it stays in demi-mute, like little uh, 600 litre little oak barrels that are lightly toasted, fairly mm-hmm. neutral, and it stays in there for about two, 24 months, almost 36 months. Wow. So it's got a bit of, you know, structure to, to the wine as well. And the idea is you just, you know, buy a case, drink a couple yourself <laughs> with some, you know, it's really lovely with like Sunday roasts mm-hmm. and like lamb dishes. Is, oh, it's just a really gorgeous, very silky wine. Yeah. And then that wine also is really good. Uh, just just lay it out, lay down a couple. A few and have bottles. A bit of a, you know, yeah, exactly. A if you can behave. Tasting. Yeah, if you can behave. <laughs> and then, quick, just quickly touching on the whites. Uh, what whites do you do? You do roll the great variety roll? Is yep. that planted? Yeah. I so for anyone who doesn't know roll, that is Vermentino, and I oh Vermentino, the acidity, the freshness, the lemony notes. Mm. I love Vermentino. So, what white wines do you have then? So we've got the Blanc de Réoub, uh, mm-hmm. we have the uh, Blanc Secret de Réoub, mm-hmm. which is the kind of the most recent one, so that yeah. kind of fleshes out that particular secret range. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a limited edition one, which is called Ephemer de, de Réoub, which is, awesome. um, uh, yeah, so that's kind of, that we only make a thousand, we only made a thousand bottles of it, it was the first release, was, was last year. And that actually, interestingly, has a bit of Sauvignon Blanc in there. Again, we chose to declassify and take a couple of risks, and it's just, again, it's just a really beautiful wine. But... The, the Blanc de Réoub has some roll in it, so it's mainly mm-hmm. roll and demillon. Oh, okay. So again, yeah, yeah. just loves the schist soil, but yeah, the, the roll very much on that kind of oily, so you get the oiliness mm. from the semillon and you get those kind of lemony, uh, rindy note from the roll. So yeah, it's, it's beautiful, really beautiful. Delicious. And very garigi and herby as well, like quite saline. Delish. Oh my God, seriously, we all need to just, we all need to come to Chateau Loube, chill out <laughs> on the beach 
and order these wines uh, yeah. from you. That's amazing. So what's, just to finish off, what's the direction? You said, you mentioned that they're much more kind of on sustainability, uh, kind of almost going much further than organics. Is there any plans for mm-hmm. new projects? So there's um, new projects coming along in terms of um, potential new products coming out there, but Ooh. I can't talk too oh, much about it. Okay. Sorry, giving you a bit of a teaser, but yeah. watch out. Okay. There's, um, yeah, there's some stuff, some really exciting projects coming up in the pipeline. So that should be really good. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of our sustainability, for us, we don't just kind of want to slap on the label of saying we're, susta- we're sustainably farmed and we produce sustainably. For us, it's the question of like, okay, well, we do this. What else can we do? It's always a journey. It's always about bettering how how much we can kind of really put back into the land and nourish it. I mean, we have a number of different sustainability pillars, such as embrace the nature, embrace biodiversity, mm-hmm. leave no trace. So the idea is, you know, all of our packaging is all recyclable. Oh, okay. uh, we're, we're actually sing- we're getting rid of all plastics within our production. We've actually got a purpose-built winery where it's fed in gr- using gravity as opposed to pumps. So, you yeah. know, we... Save energy. Exactly. So we're saving energy. We also dry farm, so we don't use any irrigation. So again, that's helping. We with this, all these beautiful, lovely wild seed banks, so that helps with the soil erosion side mm-hmm. of things. We have the the sheep do all of our um, activities in in uh, they they eat all the wild chamomile that happens in spring. So they, love they help us with a bit of pruning. <laughs> exactly, and a natural manure naturally. Of course. And then, yeah, and then so there's just lots of different things. I mean, we, we use electric vehicles. We have electric vehicle charging points. We, for even, even like the cafe, for example, all of the uh, perhaps wasted or kind of unusable fruit and veg that we grow ourselves on, at the chateau for per, for the actual um, eating purposes at the cafe then all goes back into composting. So awesome. there's always like a life cycle, you know, this yeah. kind of regenerative agriculture is a big part of who we are. And then all sorts of other things like beach cleanup days. We get involved with the community. We do educational tours. Yeah, just no. it's it's just a way of life. It's very much the heart of what we do is always trying to put back into to, to it. So sustainability is always a something that we just naturally look at. It's, it's kind of instinctive. I don't know if it is the fact that I'm drinking love by Lou, but I am <laughs> feeling a lot of love, love. <laughs> for Chateau Lou right now. So can I just yeah, say course. thank you, Lauren? Honestly, that, I mean, there's never enough time. We could go into so many more <laughs> details about everything, but it's been really informative and I've enjoyed tasting these wines. Both of them at their price point are delicious. Um, and I am serious. We need to talk about me coming to visit this vineyard because <laughs> I need... We will sort this out. Yes, I need some tranquility and I highly advise everyone else get on a flight when you True. can and get down and, to... and moments like this you can even drive to us it's not not too far yeah I suppose we'd pop to Paris where it rains yeah <laughs> less sun <laughs> and work your way down yeah um, or you could put your toes in the, in the sand at Café Leoub and uh, drink a nice little glass of organic rosé and some produce yeah well we yeah, will do once hi. we finish driving down <laughs> <laughs> Was we've gone through all the, tor- the torture yeah. of that. Oh, thank yeah. you, Lauren. Sorry, hang on. Thank you, lucky lady Lauren Lube. We <laughs> appreciate your time <laughs> at the podcast. I do feel very lucky. <laughs> oh, um, and um, um, we, we shall carry on chatting another time because I need a partner for the rest of this wine. I look forward to it. Bless you. Thank you, Lauren. Have a lovely day. Thank you ever Take so care. much. And thank you, everyone who listened. Oh, Cheers. Bye. Thank you. Santé. Bye. 
So who is coming with me to Cafe Lioub? <laughs> Send me an email. Let's sort it out. Whilst you're doing that, let me know, what did you think of the grape varieties that we mentioned, Lauren and I? Did you know Cabernet Franc was even growing down in Provence? Well, let's talk about the main grape varieties. So let's focus on red because most of the rosé is coming from red. But although they don't actually do a blend at the end of red and white to make the rosé, what they can do, though, is they may blend the grapes in the first place to do the pressing. So it's very normal that perhaps Grenache Noir might have some Vermentino roll, as they call it in Provence. Now, the red grape varieties, Grenache Noir. Grenache is lower in acidity, but very much kind of juicy raspberries, lots of red fruits, maybe some white pepper, lower in alcohol alcohol round it's about the texture then sanso is this lovely grape variety that loves the heat it's all about yummy delicious strawberry fruits i always think sanso is the kind of fun one but lovely acidity doesn't age that well but it's great you have syrah that's much more serious it's big it's bold it's got that spicy notes lots of black fruits you have Mouvetra, also known as Monastrel, down in Spain, specifically down in the Humija region. And this Mouvetra is very earthy and meaty, but with all that big black fruit, it's kind of big in everything. Then you have Carignan. Now, that's great for colour. It also has some good tannin it has good acidity as well but lovely black fruit and a little bit of spiciness now they're your main ones do look out for a great variety called tiburon i don't have time to kind of list the more local varieties but i adore tiburon the history of it we assume is from greece but they don't quite know and it's got this incredible herbaceous note very aromatic wild strawberries wild raspberries so look out for tiburon now going to the whites we mentioned roll i adore roll or Mentino. Gorgeous acidity with lovely lemony, limey, grapefruit notes, slightly herbaceous, sometimes saline. It's delicious. The other high acidity grape varieties would be Claret and Bobolink. If you like the more textural grape varieties, just to know if you ever see them on a bottle of wine, which you might more likely see Marsan or Roussan. Now, they're great blending partners together. You'll often find them up in the Rhone Valley blended. Marsan is more of the texture, the weight, the structure, a little bit of an oiliness to it, but also has these lovely kind of melon notes to it and sometimes stone fruits. But the Roussan is all a bit more exotic, a bit more aromatic, more perfumed. It can also have a bit of texture, but it's got this lovely kind of pear and honey notes. And then lastly for the whites is Grenache Blanc which is a mutation of Grenache Noir. Kind of similar in terms of lower in acidity, kind of fat, textural, higher alcohol. It has nice apple notes, sometimes a bit of stone fruits. So all of these are very often in Provence blended together. Did you know all of those great varieties? Let me know. Now, I just want to touch on regions for a second. Coteau de Provence is, of course, the largest one, but there is also Coteau Valois de Provence, which is right in the middle of the whole area, and it is much higher altitude. So if you see that, you actually might get fresher styles. And there's also Coteau d'Aix in Provence, which X is spelt A-I-X. So look out for that. Now, in terms of smaller regions that people don't know as much about, very little gets exported. But if you're lucky enough to be on holiday, look for Cassis. This is for white wines. This is east of Marseille. And it was actually the first appellation that got its status in Provence. They're very often made from Marsan 
and Claret. Now, Bandol, which is just a little bit further east of Cassis, is Mouvetre town. So this is big, heavy reds, really age-worthy reds. And the rosés coming from Bandol, normally if they have more Mouvetre, are actually much more concentrated, more earthy, more meaty, much more powerful. So if you prefer the more delicate styles, you actually want to stay away from Bandol in general. You've also got Palette, which just very, very simply, they do everything. They've actually got some quite strict aging. They're quite traditional and they have to age for at least eight months, the white and the rosés. But there's over 25 varieties. So the way I remember Palette is it's like a palette of colours, like an artist's palette. That's the way I remember it. Now, I mentioned also Belle. That is just on the hillside of Nice. So if you do go visit Nice, that's a really great one to pop to. But the wines there do tend to be very expensive because there's very little made. But they're very perfumed. And just think of rose petals. This is actually the only AOC that you can use Chardonnay. And the roses are a little bit different because they do use two of those local varieties called Braquette and Follet Noir. So basically, long story short... There is actually a hell of a lot more variety than most people realise in Provence. Have a look at your labels in the future so that you can see if it tastes a little bit different and if you like that style from that place. Now, I asked you at the beginning what was the most expensive bottle of rosé that you've ever tasted. The most expensive in Provence, just for your information, would be a wine called Garus, which does see new French oak barrels. Now, that will set you back about £100. That's not the most expensive rosé in France. So for your statistics, the most expensive bottle of rosé is a bottle from the Languedoc. It's called Clos de Temple, and it's made by Gerard Bertrand, and that's going to set you back about £190. So would you pay that? If if you would, then you may also be interested in the most expensive bottle of rosé in the world. Now, Richard Hemming, who's Master of Wine, did the work for me in a recent masterclass he did online. He went onto the Hedonism website and you will find many wines that are well over a few thousand pounds a bottle for the sine qua non wines. These are cult wines from California. The most expensive for one bottle is the Sinequinon Crossed Rose 1997 and it is £15,600. So uh, let me know if you're buying it and uh, let me come over and share it with you. <laughs> that would be nice. So the quote of the week is a quote that nobody famous probably ever said, but very rosé related and it is, stop and smell the rosé. So do stop for a second, smell that glass, swirl it around, enjoy the aromas, enjoy the moment, take some time out for yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Do share it with all your wine loving friends. Please like, subscribe if you haven't already. You'll find all my information in the show notes. So do send me more comments. It's really lovely to hear. And I will see you again on another episode of Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat. Cheers to you. Cheers to you.